0: Kia ora Tato, welcome back to this bonus episode of Aotearoa Unearthed. In this episode I'm talking to members of the archaeology project Rua Mā Tete, Rua Mā Tata, which is based out of Waikato University. And this project is looking at Waikato wetland pā using a combination of archaeology, carbon dating and Mātauranga Māori. It's taken me a while to edit this episode as it's a conversation with six of the team members. I'm just going to introduce them now. We've got Professor Alan Hogg, who's the radiocarbon dating expert, Warren Gumbly, who's a very experienced archaeologist, Tom Roa, Tainui, Komatua, and Associate Professor at Waikato, Associate Professor Gretel Boswick from Auckland University, who's a dendrochronologist, and then two PhD students, Isaac Bakaiba and Rowan McBride. So, hopefully, you're going to get to know them really well throughout this interview and get to recognise their voices. I'm really excited about this project. It's quite an in depth interview with a lot of detail, but it's also just got so many facets. So, Tom, if you just want to start with that karakia that lends the name to the project.
1: Ika Tani. Can you explain what the meaning is
0: behind those words?
1: The kalaki is pre European and it ends acknowledging the environment with the flax and all of the other materials around the spaces that we've been dealing with. And also acknowledges Maui, took control of his environment and decided that he'd tie the sun because the sun was going too fast in the sky. The original daylight savings, I suppose. In his tying of that sun, he also used this phrase rua matiti rua matata. We've given that name to this project because it talks also about having taken control of our environment, we need to ensure that the environment is cared for. So Ruamatata also comes from another karakia about making sure that the spaces are right. So that's our project, the spaces that humans interact with and that we make sure that in those spaces we pay a respect to that environment.
0: Thank you so much. Warren, if you could describe how this project came together, its origin story.
2: I guess from an archaeological point of view, the origins of Pa in New Zealand have been somewhat mysterious. It's one of these aspects of our cultural landscape that we take for granted. There's always been a research question around why did Māori build these places and why are they so prominent and so important? What motivated people and of course when did this start to happen? We know that when people first settled in New Zealand, they had a very traditional Eastern Polynesian culture but very quickly it developed into something that was quite distinct and a major aspect of that cultural landscape were par. There's a question of timing and motivation, really. People have conjectured a number of different reasons, and generally the most common reason is the very distinct association between the distribution of par and landscapes, which are suitable for horticulture. Par are very concentrated in the northern part of New Zealand, and that's the area we find the most valuable part of the landscape as far as growing kumaracism. So, We know now that these are much, much more complicated relationships, and there's also a very strong social and political dynamic involved in these, but we just really have no understanding of the timing and the reasons for that, so we're trying to get some understanding of those two aspects.
0: Warren, if you were describing what a par is, I mean, I know they'll all be different, but perhaps for a listener who doesn't really know anything about what a par is?
2: I mean, commonly people think of them as a defended village, which is really a little bit of oversimplification. So, power range enormously in size from places of number of hectares down to 500 to 1,000 square meters. The common defining element is that they're a defended settlement. So they have defenses. And normally those defenses are earthworks, not always. But they also inevitably contain the remains of people's living areas. And they also have large areas devoted to the storage of crops as well. If you like, it's a focal settlement.
0: And Warren, why are you in particular looking at wetland PAR?
2: The wetland PAR, of course, have preserved posts, so that's what enables us to do this work. They're kind of an optimal environment with access to a whole range of different resources, so presumably they'll track along on much the same time frame as PAR and dry environments, which are accessing similar resources. And in fact, some of the PAR we are looking at are not purely wetland, they're really dryland PAR site with a wetland component adjacent
0: and Warren, how much research on PAR has been done by archaeologists in the past?
2: Really, there's a very little work. I mean, there's Jeff Irwin's work, POTU, in the 1970s and 80s, which is really the only concerted research project on PAR specifically. There's been a lot of other earlier work done in the late 50s, early 60s, but a lot of that was quite embryonic, and there's been very little work done on PAR since then. Effectively, there was really an informal moratorium on working on PAR through much of the 80s and into the 90s. And that was partly a reflection of iwi willingness to allow archaeologists to work on PA. And I think also uh, some acknowledgement by archaeologists that that was a sensitive issue and that they really didn't want to tackle it. We've sort of reached this point now where I think it's sort of timely to revisit that and try and understand it better. Because we're bringing in the Ranga Maori aspect, which I think is quite vital to this project, it's allowing us to look at the sort of social dynamic behind the development of PA archaeology is limited as we can talk about places we can talk about the physical features but bringing in the whole social history aspect is really the way to understanding and explaining the development path
0: well that's exciting i'm wondering if alan you could explain how the team came together
3: My work has largely involved measuring radiocarbon concentrations in the atmosphere using tree rings, and I've largely worked in the paleoclimate field uh, investigating past environmental processes by tracking radiocarbon and I was just chatting with Warren one day. Warren said one of the problems we've got is that if you do single carbon date on say palisade posts from a PAR or shell material or charcoal associated with the PAR, the error ranges are very large. They can be plus or minus 75 calendar years. This process that I've been using to look at past climates by looking at the radiocarbon concentration in successive tree rings can also be applied in this archaeology field. It's never been applied before in New Zealand. Zealand archaeology. So we're very keen to see if it could be done. And we did a pilot study in 2017 on Otahu Pa and we got an age of 1769 plus or minus four calendar years. That's the first time that a Pa has been very accurately and precisely dated. So once uh, Warren and I realised that the technique could be applied in archaeology, it blossomed from there and we invited Tom and Gretel to help in their respective fields and then, of course, we got the two PhD students, Rowan and Zach, involved as well. We wanted to apply it to other PAR to work out just how PAR were established. What is the chronology associated with PAR construction?
0: And this is possible partly because you got a Marsden grant,
3: Yes, exactly. So we applied and we got, I think, about 90% of the funding we asked for. And so it's kicked off from there.
0: And how many years are you expecting this project to take?
3: The Marsden itself lasts three years, so we're about just over halfway. And we did do uh, probably a year's work ahead of it. We started negotiating with Iwi, discussing uh, the project with Tainui and the Waikato to let them know what the project is and to get their blessing and their support. But we've made good progress, I think.
0: Cool, thank you. So I know that you're using remote sensing and spatial mapping. So, Zach, I'm wondering if you could describe what this practically entails and what you're looking for.
4: The first step is basically understanding what we already know about where Paa are. We're quite fortunate or lucky in New Zealand that we've got a national database of recorded archaeological sites, being site, And so that forms a baseline of what we already know about Locations. We use historical aerial photographs going back to the 1940s where PAR are a little bit more visible. And also we use LIDAR, which is basically a three dimensional model of the landscape surface. LIDAR is generated where aircraft fly over the landscape, shoot millions of lasers down, and detect the elevation. And so famously, LIDAR has been used in the Amazon where there's really dense forestry and uncovered so-called lost civilizations and um, roads and temples and cities so it's the same techniques really applicable in New Zealand because we've got lots of freely available LiDAR data sets and so we can quite easily identify terraces ditches and banks and surface depressions where they are located in private land and forests and things like that so it's a really valuable resource to add to that underlying baseline of arc site.
0: Are you actually out in the field at all?
4: Not so much to do surveys to find PAR. So we use the ARC site and then these forms of remote sensing to identify where we think a PAR is, and it is also adjacent to wetlands, so it's more likely to have palisades preserved. But then we engage with landowners, some of and then we do site visits with them to actually see if we can find any palisades. But we're not doing massive landscape surveys transecting across farmlands.
0: We always have a section called Show and Tell, and I'm wondering, Rowan, if you could introduce us to these pa as archaeological sites. How do you find them? What are they like?
5: One of the first practicalities other projects had is to find these pa, and par that we're focusing on need to be located in a wetland environment. And in the Waikato, That equates to par which are really nestled in swamps next to peat lakes, on the banks of rivers or streams. These environments not only provide ample resources and natural defences, they also provide perfect conditions for preserving wooden artefacts and palisade posts that we require for the dating techniques that we're using in the project. The process of actually finding these par in the landscape has been quite difficult. And many of the par that we're visiting haven't been visited since the 70s. These environments provide some pretty tough working conditions, steep banks around rivers, polluted waterways, mud which comes up over your gumboots and vegetation which can be at chest height. So yeah, a lot of hot work under the sun to really clear the landscape so we get a good idea about what the par looks like and where possible alignments of palisades are. Many of the palisades have either been damaged by stock grazing or post depositional processes. They're barely sticking out ten centimeters from the ground and often are located subsurface. So we've had to do a lot of work clearing debris, removing vegetation, and then posing exploratory trenching. Once we've found a couple of posts, that's when we're in the ballpark and we're able to follow alignments of posts. And- one thing that's been rather surprising is the sheer number of palisades that we've actually been able to locate. From the three par that we've excavated thus far, we've found over 160 in-situ palisade posts. Wow. It's been amazing to see. Once you find those palisades, the next practicality is actually extracting them from the ground. These palisades can be anywhere from half a metre to three metres deep. In the environments that we're working in, the muddy soil that they're located in acts as a vacuum and creates immense pressure when you're trying to raise the posts above surface to sample. So the process of actually extracting them is quite delicate. We have a rather large metal tripod frame which houses a winch, which is activated by chains that slowly winches these palisades out of the ground surface until they're high enough for sampling. Again, it's quite a physical process, but extremely rewarding.
0: So once you've taken the sample, do you lower them back down?
5: Yes, so all the palisades that we are excavating, once they've been sampled, are returned to the exact same location that they were sampled from.
0: Gretel, I'm wondering if you can tell me what your role is
6: In the project, my role is as the dendrochronologist, so I have responsibility for provision of calendar-dated cowrie wood for development of a local record of atmospheric carbon-14. And my other role is also to support Rowan in his research project assisting him with the tree ring analysis of the palisade posts. I've had a long time collaboration with Alan Hogg through using kauri for radiocarbon calibration. We've worked together over several years and then this project, as Alan developed it, it was just you know a great opportunity to be involved in something so exciting.
0: Working with these palisade posts, is there anything that's different or striking compared to your work on Cody?
6: Yes, so we haven't found any kauri yet. There are different species that Rowan's been identifying. Pukatia, Matai, Miro have been found. There are mixed species being used to create the palisades. I think what is interesting is the ages of the trees that were being used as well and their size. So what does that tell you about the nature of the vegetation in the area? around the sites, and where might they be going to collect that material to bring it back to build the palisading. I think it's also interesting the technical challenge of these species because they are not suitable for classic dendrochronology. These trees have very sensitive growth patterns so they present challenges to us in terms of suppression of rings and false rings and absent rings too
0: perhaps Rowan could talk a little bit more about how you go about sanding them and working with them in the lab.
5: From the field with these palisade posts when they're extracted we take a large 250 millimetre sample which is cut from the base of the palisade. This is the thickest part of the palisade and that enables us to capture the maximum amount of tree rings. We then cut a number of smaller sub-samples, biscuit samples from that large sample for further analysis the first stage of analysis is the C14 dating and sampling. We take a small biscuit sample, which is then brought to a high polish by sanding until we get a mirror sheen, and that enables us to have a really good visual of not only the rings but any kind of features or characteristic which kind of hints at that tree's life cycle, any scarring or episodes of burning. And then the 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 second stage of analysis, the species of the tree that was used to construct this palisade post, and that's done by visualizing the cellular structure of the tree on three different visual planes basically I take thin sections from a small sample of the palisade and I compare the cellular structure of those visual planes to then reference collections and examples in the literature and as Gretel said most of the trees that we've found thus far are pukatia. although challenging it's they're really interesting to work on.
0: It's amazing when you think of archaeology you don't think of well I don't of examining wood and the rings and that tiny level of details.
6: Uh, but it's all part of archaeology, you see. In the UK, dendro is a common archaeological dating technique. It's just here, the nature of our material culture is a little bit different, so that presents some challenges to us.
0: Thanks Gretel and Rowan, that's really interesting. And now I want to move to Tom. I know you're not an archaeologist, and I'm just wondering if you can explain how you came to be involved in this project.
1: Kia ora, Rosemary. Tato. I have to say that I never felt anything for archaeology and I felt it at all interesting until I got involved with this project. And when Alan invited me to his office for a talk, I thought, oh, what can I do in this space? Truthfully, again, Warren's earlier comment about the 80s, 90s, there being a a sort of a moratorium from iwi. Well, I have to put my hand up and say that. And my role as an iwi leader, I was a part of that saying to archaeologists, I'm really sorry. I'm not sure that we can trust you with the taonga of our tūpuna. But after sitting with Alan and Warren and being invited to be a part of examining the juxtaposition of mātauranga Māori with the Western science involved in archaeology, it's just opened my eyes to a very exciting world. Our engagement with some of our local iwi and local hapū people, we're finding the same thing happening. I'm hopeful that this will pass on to you some of our younger people so that the capacity of the iwi through this project will grow.
0: What do you think it's opened your eyes to? What have you appreciated learning?
1: That, number one, we can work together. And Alan really excited me when he said that there's plus or minus four in the dating of these spaces. Wow, that just blows my mind that we're able to do that kind of accuracy. So therefore, when we have stories about certain communities... And the oral history that's passed on, we can put dates to. It's very exciting. When we've found materials, as I've watched Rowan with his tripod and Rowan and Zach and Alan and Warren extracting these palisades and how this team has conducted itself. The iwi and the scientific community's interactions in this have been eye-opening for me, but also I think exciting for the hapu and the iwi, both in what is happening today, but also what can happen for the future from what we're learning about the past.
0: Oh, that's so encouraging to hear. And yeah, hopefully this can be like a model for further types of joint projects where there's a partnership instead of being that mistrust. So, Zach, do you want to talk a bit more about what you've been doing in collecting these oral histories and talking to the people who have the ancestral connection to these pa?
4: I guess in order to interface with the archaeological research and the archaeological results, we're having to collect information mātauranga Māori associated with these pa in Waikato. I guess there's two components to that. One is mātauranga that has been written down between now and the mid-1800s, and the other is mātauranga that is held by knowledge holders today, because this mātauranga, it's lived. It's not like we are studying a long-forgotten civilization. These pā are known by the descendants. They are known to have been occupied by particular ancestors. The mātauranga is all very rich and vibrant, Tainui have occupied Waikato, they've held the place, and so the knowledge has been maintained, which is not the case in many other places in the country. We are trying not to shy away from that richness and that detailed history. We have developed a cultural heritage database that allows for the collection of information associated with thousands of pā which are connected to thousands of ancestors. I like to think of it as like a woven cloak of rich matauranga across the landscape. And that cloak is pinned down to specific past sites. And then you can follow individual strands of harakeke fibres to connect to other ancestors and and other places. Of course, this cultural database is going to help us interface with the archaeology, but it's also a resource that will be made available to people researching their own ancestry or kaitiaki looking to identify and protect wahitapu, etc. So there's lots of spin-off valuable outcomes of this research project.
0: And Zach, all this amazing matauranga Māori that you've been collecting and that's been shared with you, how is it going to work in with the archaeology?
4: I guess talking about the information that we've been gathering, we're finding there are gaps. And there's a lot of potential for the archaeology to fill those gaps or create new relationships between descendants and these places. So, for example, I recall a conversation I had with Fire Hazel when we went to Roto Mangahia or Lake Mangahia and we went out to the site and we did a whakawate or opening the way for our, our research. And Fire was saying that this is the first time that any descendant has been here since the land was alienated back in the 1800s. Because a lot of the past sites in the Waikato, a lot of these cultural heritage places are in private ownership. And I think archaeology is certainly a way of restorative justice. It's a way for people to reconnect by actually walking on those places.
0: Wow, I love that, Zach. Archaeology is restorative justice. It just sounds like it could be a whole topic or project in itself. Um, Back to you, Tom. I'm just wondering if you could talk a wee bit more about the possibilities and potential that Zach's work might open up for um, the Tainui people and for this connection between archaeologists and iwi in general.
1: Number one is the work that Zach is doing, the possibilities for whakapapa, kōrero and the links with proverbial sayings. In his tracking of that, a possibility of an app Excites me, but that's not part of his PhD. It's just another one of those offshoots that we're talking about. And a second offshoot is that science for our young Maori has not really been very attractive. But things that I'm seeing in this project spark things off in my head about how this science can be applied in a Maori way to attract our young people into this field. The third aspect, and this is something that Warren did earlier in 2017, was that at, at Otaho, Pāne, Taupiri, and working with the people at the Marae there, Warren and the team put in some kūmara gardens using some of the information that they'd gathered in the archaeology. When I sometimes mention Warren's name to some of those relations, oh, that's the kūmara archaeologist, the potential in those links goes far beyond what we're doing. And unfortunately, there are only 24 hours in the day.
0: If we move now, perhaps, to the wiggle match dating, which I'm hoping, Alan, you can explain to make it understandable. (laughs) Because I'm not really a scientist at all. So could you please tell us about this wiggle carbon dating? I'm probably even saying it wrong, but explain what it is and your work on it.
3: Traditionally in archaeology, people just get a single carbon date. And the problem with that is there is not a direct linear relationship between carbon dates and calendar time. And we need to convert carbon dates into calendar time, and we do that by a process which we call calibration. So if you were to do a series of carbon dates from say a known age cowrie going back 500 years we get a wiggly pattern and that's why it's called wiggle match dating because that wiggly pattern you end up with a series of wiggles when you plot the carbon dates against calendar time And that wiggly pattern is characteristics of any tree. So if we find a palisade post, for example, that had 150 rings, if we were to do a series of dates from the very outside to the centre, we would find a wiggly pattern that we can actually line up with the pattern that we've created from tree rings of known calendar age. So It's just a particular shape in the radiocarbon pattern and that will then allow us to identify very accurately the date of the outside ring uh, when the tree was cut down. And at Otahu Pa, as I said, we've got a precision of plus or minus four calendar years.
0: Oh, thank you for that explanation, Alan. Rowan and then Zach, I'm wondering if you can just tell me a bit about what it's like to be a PhD student on this amazing project with all these wise people in their own field.
5: One of the main things that attracted me to the project is the multifaceted nature of the project and the opportunity to work with a really highly respected research team of individuals who are highly respected in their own fields. As a PhD student, I'm just incredibly lucky to be a part of this project because I can be a sponge and just soak up all that knowledge and all that experience, and in turn it makes me a better researcher and a better archaeologist. That's why I'm having such fun.
0: Oh, thank you. What about you, Zach? Do you want to add anything about your experience?
4: Yeah, I think it's a massive privilege to be a part of this team but also to study this topic. I remember I was working at Heritage New Zealand at the time. You know when the opportunities come up and you get... Butterflies, and you know it's just like the right thing to do. I saw this email of the scholarship come up, and I was like, ah, oh, that sounds like something that's for me. So the whole journey has been a big learning curve. It's been a challenge, but I think I've grown exponentially as a result of that. And yeah, it just excites me. I'm almost like, oh, I'll be ashamed for it to finish, which I don't think is something you hear from a PhD student too often.
0: No, I know I love doing my PhD too, but I don't think that's the case for everyone. So just to change tack a bit, just wondering if, Warren, you could talk a little bit about what you've discovered at this halfway point of the project, just in terms of the archaeology.
2: One of the sites we've been concentrating on to date is at Lake Mangakawari. There are two past sites there, and they were investigated by Auckland University in the late 60s, and they're both very well-described sites, but Neither of the sites have been dated, so it's been fantastic going back there and looking at these sites, and a couple of things have become quite obvious. One is that the sites are not nearly as well preserved as they were. Back in the 60s, a lot of the Palisade posts were very visible, but because of land use, particularly grazing with cattle, very few of the posts are visible at all, apart from little nubbins above the ground surface, if we're lucky. But what we have found, and we were really lucky because this last summer was so dry that lake levels were unusually low. And we discovered actually that the defences, particularly on one of the par sites, is a lot more complicated and substantial than even they recorded in the 60s. We found at Manga 1 that the palisades, there are, there are multiple rows that we had found the remains of a, a fighting stage defending uh, the main entranceway into the par site. And none of these elements were visible at all. In the 60s. One of the other things that we found were these scatters of large boulders in this area. And we were talking to Jack Cunningham, one of the co matua for Ngati and Jack said, Well, oh, those big posts in behind the other sets of posts, they'll be for a fighting stage. And all of a sudden, that made fantastic sense about what these boulders were all about. They'd been sitting on top of the fighting stage. We've also had lots of other amazing. Artifacts, both wooden artifacts and pieces of binding fibre, a rather distinctive Pofenua and an amazing Patu, all beautifully preserved in sediment. But I think one of the things we're really hoping to try and develop is a much better understanding of how these really quite complex defences developed.
0: Thanks, Warren, and I'm sure you've actually got a lot more interesting archaeology that you've yet to discover. I'm just realising that we haven't done our Digging Deep section where we really get into a lot of detail about a particular topic. And I'm actually wondering if Warren and then Rowan, if you could talk a bit more about these Palisade posts, really get into the detail of what they are and how they're made.
2: I mean, they're a unique remnant, they, of course, don't survive in 99% of par. When we extract the post, one of the things we do do is we take a huge number of photographs with the aim to develop a three-dimensional model through photogrammetry. And one of the reasons we're doing this is to record, in particular, the remains of the working or the adzing of the post, the shaping of the bases, how that's done, because we can actually see the remains of individual ads. We want to record that in three dimensions so that that's a resource people in the future to be able to examine these posts remotely without having to extract them and hopefully again that will be another resource for the hapu.
0: And Warren would these palisades take a long time to construct?
2: I think so and they're an enormous amount of work when you're talking hundreds of posts and every one of them has to be cut down with an ads it's time-consuming they also then have to be transported to the site then they have to be organized and put into the ground I think you're talking in terms of thousands and thousands of person hours, especially some of the more complex examples we've got where there are multiple rows. That's something that's probably done over a period of time and was extending and adding and finding and, and developing.
5: Now I just wanted to add to some of Warren's points about palisades. I think one of the key findings is the variability of those palisade posts. At every site that we've explored, there's been palisades that are a variety of shapes and sizes and species. We're looking at palisade posts remains that range from one meter and 10 centimeters in, in diameter to posts five mm. meters long three of those met- meters being subsurface and diameters of over 20 centimeters so the variability is really incredible some have really intricate fine-grained adsing with, with their tapers that start from one and a half meters away from the palisade's pointed tip and yet we have other posts which are almost Blunt ends just kind of hacked down at a low angle when they were felling the tree and placed straight in the ground as is.
0: Rowan, I've got a question from Brooke who's a Year 7 and 8 student and she just asked, what do you want to find in the future?
5: Most young archaeologists are interested in is finding those observed behaviours in the chronology of an archaeological site. One thing for me in my PhD research, one of my research questions is looking at whether we can get indications of redevelopment or repair at par sites about whether certain areas of the palisade defences may have been repaired over time and so therefore they'll have a different date and calendar age to other palisades in other areas of the par or whether they've added subsequent rows of palisades at these par sites over time and increased defences for certain regions and how that relates to the wider understanding of par within the landscape of the Waikato for me is, is something that's really interesting.
0: Thanks, Rowan, and to all of you. I suspect we could just keep talking and talking about this amazing project, but I think at this point I'm going to ask Tom if he can wrap up with a karakia.
1: This karakia suggests that there's a number of paipae, and the first one was the idea, the second was the bringing the idea to a viability for funding, and then the third is, where does it go from here? So this karakia sees that, and then it asks the final question, where does it all come from? It comes from the completion in the earth. It comes from the completion in the sky and how everything between may interact. Kia ora tatani. Kia inoi tatani. Tui tui a te heke tui tui a te kahotu heari ki taui pikiti a te pae tuatahi, te tuarua, te pae pae ira hirātua nei. Tuia ya runga tuia i raro te au karongo te pō i te, kōrero, I te wānanga. Thank you. Thank
0: you so much to all of you. I might have to make an extremely long episode because it's got so much amazing content. I'll look forward to editing this, although I think it's going to take a while. (laughs) But I'll enjoy it. I love the editing. It's really fun. Kakite, thanks again for listening to this bonus episode of Aotearoa Unearthed. If you haven't yet listened to the first eight episodes, make sure to download them from iTunes or Spotify. This podcast is a joint production by Heritage New Zealand, Pohiri Tonga, and the New Zealand Archaeological Association. Do feel free to share this podcast with friends and family if you think they'd enjoy it and if we get enough downloads maybe I can do a second series of Aotearoa Unearthed. I've actually just been lucky enough to attend the NZAA conference so I've got heaps of ideas for new episodes, fingers crossed.